everybody. This is David Dwight, senior pastor at Hope Church RVA, and you're listening to the Hope Sermons podcast. I'm excited about our current series called More Than Words, a 90-day overview of the entire Bible. Thanks for joining us as we learn more about God, ourselves, and how he's redeeming the world through Jesus Christ. You know, when you go to like a really special restaurant, whatever that one is for you, it's going to be a splurge. You're going to reach a little deeper into the wallet. Maybe it's a special occasion. Usually if the question was given to me, you know, where would you want to go? I probably would pick some place that serves like really good steaks. So even though my wife would tell me to order the vegetables, I'm going to go with the steak. And if it's a really good place, they'll have like a really good filet mignon. And that with a good glass of Cabernet is going to make for a sweet evening. And this is how you know, like you get even more excited when you're sitting there and the server comes to your table after a minute and they bring something like this and they set it down like you're going to need this. Like you're going to need this special steak knife. And I'm like, it's going to be a good night. Well, I think for the scriptures that we're getting into today, I think, I think you're going to need this. This is really meaty, and you're, you're going to need this as we go through the scriptures today. All right, so last week, I was talking about conversion. I wanted to try to speak to it as clearly as I knew how. Primarily, it was conversion as we observe it from the outside, But today, it's almost a part two with conversion, and it means what happens on the inside? What happens inside of us as people? What what is going on inside of us when we're talking about conversion? So we're moving along, as Dan said, in this 90-day Bible reading, making selections of what to try to speak about in the richness of how much content there is. And I'm going to speak from Romans chapter 8 today. Many people have called it the most theologically rich chapter of the entirety of the Bible. Lots of cool stories about the text of Romans 8 and how these texts have changed people's lives. So we're also going to embrace this in the season of Lent. And I think you may understand the sermon better if you put it in the framework of this is a Lenten sermon. We're in Lent. This sermon is going to have Lenten themes woven through it. It's going to have the crucifixion and death and suffering woven through it. And honestly, I like feel resistance to that. We live in a superficial culture that wants to say, don't talk to me about death and suffering and struggle. But here's the thing, friends. If we don't talk about these things that are very central to our faith, then when hardship and the severe times of life come along, We're completely surprised by them. We don't know what to do with them. We don't have any reference points for them. We haven't sought the gospel's core message of help and suffering for them. Okay, so Romans 8. As I got into this again, I've read Romans many times. I thought, you know, if Romans was a book that was for sale on Amazon in today's day and age, just the book, I think it would read something like this. Romans, How Christianity Works by Paul of Tarsus. It really is that kind of content. It's meaty. And today it's kind of instructional. 
Romans 8, 5 through 17. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Okay, remember I... I warned you, like I told you. The Holy Spirit is perhaps the least paid attention to member of the Trinity. And yet when you read the scriptures and you begin to understand the gospel, the Holy Spirit is like the director. He's not on stage. You don't ever really see him. He's the one who is behind the scenes, who really prefers to be behind the scenes, doesn't want to be up front, front and center, be seen with the lights shining. But the Holy Spirit's the director who's making it all happen, who's working the script and bringing about what's happening on the stage. So let's begin with a really important question. Here it is. What do you want What do you want? Now you ask that, and I think we're like, what do you mean, what do I want? And of course, I want to play around with it and say, what do you mean, what do I mean, what do you want? What do you want? What do I want for Christmas? What do I want for my birthday? No, 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 no. At the center of it all, what do you want? You know what's remarkable? In the Gospel of John, That question is the very first words we have from Jesus in the Gospel of John. In John 1, 35 through 38, here's a little snippet. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus walking by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following. What do you want? He asked them. Okay, Jesus is not somebody that is known to be sort of superficial with his words or saying stuff that makes no sense. On the other hand, at this particular moment, what do you want is not what you would expect. He's being introduced to these two guys. Like John says, this is Jesus. 
Well, hey, Jesus, how are you? Good to meet you guys. I'm Jesus. What's up? John introduces them to Jesus. There's none of that. He says to them, what do you want? Right? It's kind of an alarming, surprising question. Just imagine, like, I don't know, I think of, like, I'm at a party, and somebody, I'm meeting them somewhere, and they're like, hi, I'm John Smith. And I'm like, hi, John, what do you want? <laughs> right? He's either going to be like, what a jerk, and turns, turns back to whoever he's with, like, what a weirdo. Like, do not go say hi to that guy. <laughs> but let's look at the question for a minute. What do you want? The answer to that question is driving your life. The answer to that question is driving what you're doing with your life. The answer to that question is driving your priorities, your choices, your decisions. And it's easy to start creating a life that is driven by what we want, but all the while we never took time to stop and ask, what do you want? Okay, so honestly... The life you're living, what it looks like, is the result of this question. But all of a sudden, we're like, I don't know that I ever really thought about that question. Like, what do I want at the core of who I am? Yes, that's what Jesus means. What do you want at the core of who you are? I think what we want, we want to be known. We want to be understood we want to be affirmed. We want to be loved. We want respect. We want to be cherished. All those words, one way or another, I think they're all in the mix. They may apply to different ones of us with different pungency depending on various circumstances. What do you want? Those are the kinds of things we want. So if we didn't understand that, we started creating a life, I promise you, the life you have created is the result of what you want. Have you ever asked yourself what you want? And thereby is the life you have created, the life you want in order to get what you want. So all of a sudden, this question that seems like an oddball curveball from Jesus becomes central to our existence. And then, of course, like, no surprise, it's Jesus who asked it. The question he asks is, like, central to our existence. We long to be known. We long to be loved. We long for affirmation. Kurt Thompson has written a number of books, psychologists, and he talks about a lot of the stuff that happens in the hidden inner places of our heart. And he speaks about heaven being a place where this knowing becomes one of the most beautiful parts of it. Here you go. When regarding the notion of eternity, we long to be known forever, ever more deeply and joyfully. In the center of our souls, eternity is not just measured in time, it's measured in depth, a depth that feels infinite. And in this case, it's the depth of our desire to be known that is infinite. Okay, so if that's our desire, then a reasonable question would be, where do I get that? And how do I get it? 
So if you've been around a while, you probably heard me say that I'm frequently drawn to the question of why. Why are we doing this? Why is this true? I'm also drawn to the question how. How's that work? Like explain that to me. Like how's that gonna work? And this is what we're gonna get into in this meaty meal from Paul in Romans 8. Okay, Catherine Weigand said, I do know that none of us can respond fully to the call of God without a death. All right, so here's where we're gonna start embarking on the paradox that is at the core of Christianity. Everything we want, it comes to us on the other side of a death. And that is a completely paradoxical idea. Everything that we've learned, everything we've been taught says, if you want everything that you want, you pursue it by getting all the world's goods. Whatever it is, money, sex, people, popularity, you name it, that's how you get what you want. By pursuing all that stuff that looks like life. And then Jesus, who asked us, what do you want, comes along and basically tells us, you know the way to get what you want starts with a death. And then we're like, no, we did not know that that's the way to get what you want. And he's going to teach us this paradox. A few weeks ago, moving through the sweep of our 90-day Bible, I was using the metaphor of a big jigsaw puzzle. And there's so many verses and ideas that are like pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that, you know, they're hovering around there and then you find where they fit. And then all of a sudden that big jigsaw puzzle picture of redemption is starting to make sense. Well, there's this jigsaw puzzle piece, right? We're now coming into the New Testament and there's something in the center and it's a piece. And you know, you're like, what is that piece? I can't find it. Like what? I don't get it. Like I can't find. And then we begin to realize that piece is a cross. And then we're like, nobody expected a cross. When you're moving through the Old Testament, you're looking at the prophecies and you're beginning to understand God's redemptive work. The one thing nobody expected was a cross. And so the reason we haven't been able to put that piece in place is because we were never looking for that piece. You know how a lot of times in life, you may come to realize after the fact that you were looking for something and it was there all along, but you completely missed it because you weren't looking here. You were like looking here and the thing was here, right there. And you're like, I missed it. It was right here, but I was looking right here. This is the kind of idea we're being introduced to. Okay, so the paradox of Christianity, the way to live is to die. The way to find what you want, the way to fulfillment is to empty ourselves, to die a death with Christ. Okay, Matthew 16, here we get the picture. Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Okay. Note that he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, right? Not just follower, not just person in the crowd, not just onlooker, but my disciple. If you want to be my disciple, you deny yourself, you take up your cross and follow me. Okay. With all due respect, wherever and however... The idea of taking up your cross got turned into this thing I've heard in church life. That's your cross to bear. Like, that's your hard thing in life. Like, you got a difficult spouse. You have a challenging issue. You have a family member with a disability. 
Like that's what it means to take up your cross. I appreciate the meaningfulness of that conversation, but that is not what this is talking about. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's talking about dying. When Jesus died on a cross, he's giving himself up to God. Okay, so in the school of discipleship, in the days of Jesus, rabbis would have disciples. And it was a very close mentoring kind of a life. When you were a disciple to a rabbi, the essence of your focus was, I'm just going to learn to imitate this guy. This is the rabbi I want to follow. And you basically shape your life to conform to his life, to imitate his life. Here's what we get in Jesus. He dies on a cross. And he's telling us to imitate his life. But what we also see is that he is raised from the grave. And this too will be the way we imitate his life. Once we die on the cross, like Christ died on the cross, he will be raised to life by the Spirit, so we would be raised to life by the Spirit. It's like the theological math of it. All right, so... Notice how Jesus says, whoever loses their life for me will find it. For me will find it. When John opened his gospel, he said of Jesus, in him was life and that life is a light of human beings. Like in him was life. Like he's got it. He's the source. He's where you go to get it. But there's so many shiny things in our lives, so many attractions, so many appeals, so many ads that get your attention that we're trying to find our life in all those shiny thing places when Jesus, we're looking here and he's here talking about life, but it comes through a cross, that thing we never expected. Here's what I think happens for many of us. We go for knockoff versions. So where Jesus was teaching, die to yourself, give up your life and embrace mine, Make sure that you lose your life for me. But many of us are losing our lives for other things that don't have life in them. It's a temptation to a false construct that looks like this life of sacrifice we're supposed to do. And it's an easy one to fall into, but that thing doesn't have life in it. What do I mean by this? I'm going to call it false martyrdoms. So Jesus said, die to yourself and live to me, okay, that's the biblical idea. But what we do in many respects is we sacrifice ourselves for a whole bunch of things. We may sacrifice ourselves for our jobs, our careers, our resume building, our career climbing, and we sacrifice ourselves for that thing. We kind of martyr ourselves for it only to find that that thing didn't have life in it. Somebody on our staff said to me this week that this is a woman who spoke to me. She said, a lot of women sacrifice themselves for their families. And it's a false martyrdom. The family, beautiful, good work to do, give ourselves, of course. But the martyrdom piece becomes a false martyrdom. Our family doesn't have life in it to give us. That's not to say it's not a good thing. This is why this is an easy trap to fall into because it's a good thing. 
Who's going to argue that good work isn't a good thing? But when you martyr yourself to it, thinking that life is found in it, then we come up very disillusioned. Who's going to say that family life isn't a good thing? It's a beautiful thing, but when you martyr yourself to it and find out that it doesn't have life in it the way we hoped, then we're disillusioned. For tons of people, keeping up with their Instagram account is a false martyrdom. I mean it sincerely. There's like this tyranny that I'm behind. I'm not posting. I saw somebody's post. Did you see somebody's post? I haven't posted in a week. It's a kind of false martyrdom. You give yourself to it, and then you feel disillusioned that this thing doesn't have life in it. In other words, I'm sacrificing myself into a non-life place. That's why Jesus made it clear when he said, whoever loses their life for me. It's so important, the for me part. He didn't just say whoever loses their life. He said whoever loses it for me. So in these false martyrdoms, where if all of this fatigue and disillusionment that comes with the false martyrdoms, what our culture has said, here's the compensation for that. It's called self-care. So you keep doing self-care, and that's the way you'll keep yourself surviving through these false martyrdoms. So go get a massage. Go take the weekend away. Go do whatever you need to do for self-care, okay? Hopefully it's healthy-ish outlets, But we all know for many of us, it comes in a bottle or a pill or something else. But that self-care thing is a false promise that comes with false martyrdom that keeps us on this cycle of running out of life. It's the lather, rinse, repeat of all false promises. It's give yourself to this thing that looks good and you die for it, but it doesn't have life in it. So go do a self-care experience to try to Garner the energy to go back to it. Go back to it. Wear yourself out again because there's no life in it. Repeat the self-care experience. Repeat the martyrdom. Repeat the self-care. And it's this downward spiral that doesn't have life in it. We think the thing, excuse me, we think the life is in the thing, the job, the family, the Instagram, or even we think the life is in the self-care. But all of that keeps us cycling away from this breathtaking paradox of Christianity that nobody ever saw coming, nobody would ever imagine. And the first time you deal with this reality for real, you're shocked by it. That Jesus says the way to life is through death. So what we've done is we've created a lot of superficial formulas about how to get life. And then the hard times come. And then those superficial formulas that we called faith fall apart and they don't hold up under the hard times. So then we do what we call chucking our faith that God didn't come through, but it's not that God didn't come through, it's that the superficial formula didn't work for the hard times of life. It's not God we chucked, it's the superficial formula. Okay, so how does it work? Here's another way Paul describes it. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. Right? The disciple does what the master does. Our master died on a cross and rose from a grave. And when we do what he did, 
the same thing will be our story. We will die with him on a cross. I've been crucified with Christ. And if we do, we will also be raised from the grave. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Said another way, I read a quote the other day because I'm in all kinds of Lenten readings about the cross and so on. And I read a quote the other day and it said, during the days of the Roman occupation, when a man took up a cross, he knew what it meant. It was the loss of everything he had known in his life because he would be carrying that cross to the place of his death. I read years ago a story about Operation Desert Storm. I shared this a while back. There was a chaplain who was giving a message before combat started in Operation Desert Storm, before the mobilization of it. Well, when everything is put in place to prepare for this kind of a thing, weapons, supplies, and everything are sent over, but quietly being unloaded through the back of a transport plane is also hundreds of coffins because people with experience in military know that coffins are likely to be needed. So it's on the eve of Desert Storm, and this chaplain is giving a message, and there's a whole bunch of young soldiers there, and he's talking to them about how to know you've really got life and this call and this invitation to Christ. And there are tons of young soldiers who respond, and they want to be baptized, and they're in the desert, and the chaplain has no idea what are we going to baptize people in until he notices, looking off to the side, this stack of coffins. And so he decides the coffin is the only thing we've got to use for baptisms. So they take a coffin, they fill it with water, and all those soldiers who were baptized lay down in the coffin under that water in the symbol of death and rose out of that water and out of that coffin in the symbol of life. What could be more clear and more dramatic in this picture of dying to ourselves and rising with Christ. Okay, but then it gets very sort of confusing, doesn't it? Because the way Paul talks about this, he says, if anyone doesn't have the spirit, they don't belong to Christ. And the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He raised Christ from the dead, so he will raise you from the dead. It all gets rather chewy and circular. So as I was working on this, I remembered old catechisms. If you were raised in the church as a kid, the word catechism may resonate with you. Catechisms are ways to teach biblical truths in these like simple Q&A formats. So trying to get into this very chewy steak, I kind of wrote a little catechism, and I'm going to share it with you. Essentially, my take on this section of scripture goes like this. Question, how do I know if I'm a Christian? Answer, if you are, the Holy Spirit is in you. Question, how do I know if the Holy Spirit is in me? Answer, you desire what the Holy Spirit desires. Question, what does the Holy Spirit desire? Answer, the Holy Spirit desires to serve God, obey God, and give glory to God. Question, who is the Holy Spirit? Answer, he is God, spiritually present. Question, what does the Holy Spirit do? Answer, he gives life, God life, eternal life, resurrected life. Question, how does the Holy Spirit give us life? Answer, he's God. He has the power to bring you to repent of your sin and desire God. And also because he's God, he has the power to resurrect us to eternal life. Question, what does it mean to have a mind set on the flesh? Answer, it means my heart is hostile to God. 
telling him to stay out of my business. Question, what does it mean for my mind to be hostile to God? Answer, it means if God's word shows sin in my life, my heart says, this is my life and I'll do what I want. Question, what happens when I die? Answer, it depends on if the spirit is in you or not. Question, if the spirit lives in me, what will happen when I die? Answer, the spirit will raise you in resurrection life just as he raised Jesus. Question, what if the spirit does not live in me? Answer, since the spirit is the one who gives life, if he isn't in you, you won't have life. Question, what if I want to have life? Answer, die to yourself, repent of your sin and ask Christ in your life through his spirit and watch some of the most remarkable things happen in your life that you never, ever could have seen coming. Gordon MacDonald said, what happened at the cross unleashed a power. We might call it a transforming or a converting power that makes the energy of a thousand suns pale by comparison. It was an enormous event, potentially transformational for every human being. No one expected a cross. 39 books of the Old Testament scriptures. And then we come to this, so strange, so foreign. But it is the piece that unlocks the mystery. It's the puzzle piece at the center of the whole sweep of God's redemption. Robert Mulholland said, one of the deepest mysteries of a Christ-referenced life is that only by losing all, by becoming utterly devoid of all self-referenced dynamics, by becoming nothingness, do we gain all? Do we gain a life whose joys are ravishing? It's peace profound, it's humility the deepest, it's power world-shaking, it's love enveloping, it's simplicity that of a trusting child. And then what's the end result? It's that that spirit is now in us, cries out with us as we call God Abba Father. In other words, you've been adopted and you are a child of God. The creator of the universe calls you his own child and he has known you from before the beginning of time. And as you are raised in Christ into eternal life with him, part of the gift of that eternal life is that this knowing, the depth of what it means to you will increase for all eternity. Christianity is the only religion offering what we wanted. But it comes through the way we least expected. So I've been reading a book called Bread and Wine, Readings for Lent and Easter. It's been a beautiful book. And I read an entry the other evening, and I was so moved by it. And I wrote in the margin, and I decided I'll just share with you and close the sermon with what I wrote in the margin. We had thought we were dabbling around with religion, religious ideas, Christianity, church, Spotifying worship music, seeing if we like it, seeing if all of this fits into a pocket, a portion of our prosperous lives, until we realize this is God we're talking about. As central and significant, as awesome and intense, as life and blood and sticky sweat and salty tears, we're shocked at how lightly we took all of this until we had our eyes opened and our heads turned in the whiplash of the cross, to realize that he is everything significant, severe, beautiful, and true. Let's pray. Lord God, 
even as we lift simple words of prayer to you, we realize this is God we're talking to. And so we come to you in reverence and thanksgiving for who you are, for what you've done. Holy Spirit, though you are the behind the scenes director, weaving the threads of the story, would you move in our hearts so that we are called to the repentance of death that leads us to the life of Jesus. And we pray for each other in this regard, Lord, for any who are in the room for whom this is an especially deep struggle and challenge, we pray, Holy Spirit, would you be the one who opens their eyes, opens their hearts, and open all of us to the life that's really life that only you have to give. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.